Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss The Phantom. Sebastian and I am back with Matt Anderson for the second part of our Pulp Heroes podcast where we are now covering The Phantom 1996. Thank you for having me back. This is like a cliffhanger, right? It's like the serials where, uh, yeah, now we find out what happens next. Exactly. Yeah, at the end of last episode, you'll know that it seemed like we died in an explosion. <laughs> As we open this episode, we'll clearly see us jump way before the explosion and pretend like it all matches up. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yes, and if you have not listened to the previous episode, please go back and listen to it so you can hear Matt plug his awesome uh, comic that's coming out soon, which sounds super exciting. What's it called again? It's going to be called Truther. Truther. Yep, it's a slasher story. and. And you can just find me at on Twitter at Matt Begins and get details there. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get right into The Phantom. Now, Matt, you hinted a little bit that you saw The Phantom when this came out in 1996. Opening day. You were ready to slam evil. I was ready to slam evil. And, and you know what? It's been a life lesson since then. So, you know, in senior year of high school where you get to like under your picture, get to write stuff if you want like favorite bands memories or whatever in my little um blurb um in just my list of things that i remember slam evil is in there that is pretty amazing so uh that is how much the marketing of this movie has, has made an effect on me my friend robert um amazingly won a phantom ring at one of our horror trivia nights and um he is a fan of the movie as well and yeah. so he was boasting online that he was going to be slamming evil and that he had inherited the mantle of the phantom that's fantastic you know it's funny on twitter actually just last night I was sitting down to watch the movie, so I just tweeted the poster. I was said something to the effect of, you know, I'm sorry I missed your call, but I'm too busy slamming evil. <laughs> and uh, like 20 people have liked it for a nonsense, stupid, 
<laughs> thing about the Phantom and slamming evil, it's gotten way more people engaged in it than I've ever expected. People have commented, like, I love this movie. And I'm like, man, okay. <laughs> well, like, if you do enjoy this movie, how can you not remember Slam Evil? I mean, it was so hilarious of a tagline i remember it and i mean in the poster was just billy zane putting the fist with the ring yep. on it coming at you and then slam evil underneath it and you have to understand that like there's nothing about the character of the phantom that slam e like okay we talked about the shadow who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men the shadow or just the shadow knows that is a long-standing like that is Back to the origins of the character tagline. The people that were marketing this movie were like, what do we got? Uh, slam evil. Great. And you just feel like they're like, well, we just hired that guy that used to work at MTV. What, what's he got? Like <laughs> slam. Evil. Cause it's absurd. There's nothing to it. Like I get a guess. I guess he does. It feels like they didn't have anything to go on the poster. And then somebody at the last minute was, was like, look, I just need something. Yeah. Just give me yeah. anything. Look, this is the image. Yeah. He's like punching the camera. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, slam evil. Good. Fine. That's fine. Fine. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's a Hulk tagline. I mean, it's, I mean, I know that's Hulk smash, but like, but that's what this is conjuring in my head, right? Like slam evil sounds like, okay, we've got this like, you know, huge character like a, a a goliath character that is like gonna just beat people down it's like no it's dude in purple he rides a horse <laughs> and he has a wolf he's got a wolf as a pet yep so it's yeah named devil and i think maybe in this debate or this conversation about slam evil we get the uh answer of why did this movie fail <laughs> right there because they had no idea. And this movie failed spectacularly, yes. more so than The Shadow. Yes. I was surprised when I actually looked at the numbers. This movie did considerably worse. Yeah. But before we get into it, you are very knowledgeable on um, Pulp Heroes. Um, what do you know about The Phantom as created by Lee Falk? So um, it has much more uh, uh, publicate, just comic strip, and then strips com collected into comic books, history. Um, they did a, a serial, a cliffhanger serial, which I've seen several times. But but otherwise, that's been kind of it's much simpler. I mean, um, that's I don't think there was ever a radio show for it. One of Lee Falk's other characters, Mandrake the Magician, was kind of his radio character. Now, to be fair, like there was radio shows for everything, so maybe there was some you know short-lived thing, but it's nowhere near associated with that like the way the shadow was so this was definitely a newspaper strip thing um which meant that everyone knew the phantom for a very very long time like i guarantee you there was time in the like early 40s not you know not too long after batman was introduced that you could put a picture of the phantom and a picture of batman in front of people and they would more readily recognize the phantom because that was getting delivered to their house that was in their newspaper. Well, and it was in the newspapers right up through the 80s. Yeah. I remember seeing the Phantom. And, like, it was funny because my experience with the Phantom was I would be like, 
oh, cool. It's like this superhero guy and he wears purple. And then I would start to read it and I'd be like, but he's in the jungle and he rides a horse. And it was just like, this isn't working for me. Like no. I need my superheroes to be on rooftops and shit. Like, yes. I don't know about this. And I just could never get into it. You know, kind, kind of the same thing for me. I loved the weird look of the, the phantom. Although I also hate the con it's like, it's a weird thing where it's like, I, I both love the costume and I hate it. One little detail about the costume that I always remember from the strips is in, in this movie, he's wearing like a full purple bodysuit, but in the comic strips, he has like blue underpants over his purple costume. Oh yeah. 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 You had to, it, at a point it almost, it, depending on how, how much Lee Falk was like willing to, to work that day, sometimes it looked like a go-go skirt, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, depend, <laughs> depending on how much he wanted to really do. Um, you know, but it's it's interesting because you feel like this had to be like Tarzan's big. What do you got? And Lee Falk was probably like, OK, yeah, jungle, jungle action. You know, the, it, it's such an outdated concept now. Just the premise of like a story set in the jungle is all you needed to pitch something. Yeah. And what he was probably doing, although he, you know, Phantom predates a lot of stuff was just, yeah, just a lot of the comic book characters. He was just grafting onto the Tarzan story, a uh, costumed crusader story. It's not quite peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> it's a little, uh, there's, there's some awkwardness there. Well, especially since, like, you're setting this character who's wearing all purple against a backdrop of green, yes. which looks cool in a newspaper strip, yes. it's eye-catching. So, like, just on that aesthetic level, I see why he did it. And especially because uh, the vast majority of the times, you know, like six days out of the week, it's black and white. So if they're doing the Sunday strips in color the way that they do, that might be the only time that you actually really see this character purple. Well, I, I feel like people don't realize how important the colors of the costumings were for comic book and comic strip characters in the day. I mean, now we're so adjusted to superhero movies and stuff and you know the colors are all kind of muted yep. you know on most of the costumes and everything but like you know it was all done for a specific reason like yes. you notice in marvel comics and i'm sure you know all this because you're working comics but you know the reason why like the superheroes tended to have primary colors and the villains would have like purples yep. and greens and so there were these specific color motifs that were being employed just to have the maximum visual impact. Yeah. You know, when newsstands existed, they were packed, crowded places. You, you know, you couldn't guarantee that like the entire cover of your publication was going to be able to be shown and not be sitting on like a rack half covered. So you're going to do everything you can to make sure every element stands out so people will go grab it right like i mean there's no better example than you know action comics number one you've got superman in like the in his colors you've got the green car that he's lifting over his head you know it's smash i mean like it's kind of a fun um experiment is if you look at action comics number one and then cover any element of it with your hand like or or take another comic and and, and pretend like you're not being able to see the whole thing and you will see that Almost any way you lay that, you're going to still see something dynamic. 
Because you got in that case, like you've got Superman doing this thing, you've got the car, you've got the people fleeing in terror, you've got the guy in the foreground that looks panicked. Like so almost any way you lay that out. And and that's why, you know, talking about superhero costumes, you know, it's always easy, it's always fun to be like, well, they all wear their underwear on the outside of there, you know. It's like but again, speaking of the time, circus strongmen were big with kids. Like like that's that was the shorthand for the look that this person is strong because they need extra support. They need extra support. Then whatever it is that there's that visual. So it's like you put Superman in it, you put almost any character in it because that will tell to the primarily young audience that these were intended for, Oh, this person's strong or this person is this uh, nowadays. You're like, why has he got his underwear on the outside or whatever? And, you know, and it, with um, the phantom, Again, they wisely, I think, just kind of over time went to just an all purple look. So it kind of played that down. Same thing, you know, again, it's it's the Burton Batman costume, right? It gets it gets around that issue that, you know, by just making it a jet black. Yeah. The other thing that I have to say that I remember and I can't remember the dates now, but it was definitely after this show that or after this movie. Where's it before they did the short-lived animated the phantom was it 2040 I, i'm trying to remember the timing here because it feels like it would be like a batman beyond ripoff but i feel like it came first well and there was also a sort of straight to video sort of futuristic take on the phantom that was live action that came in the early 2000s 2009 something. it was like a made for tv it's sci-fi i think yeah it was sci-fi channel i believe which it looks terrible i never I never bothered. I've always been tempted to watch it, but I just can't bring myself to. Because I'm going to assume if it was it was broken into two parts, so it's probably four hours and like, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's interesting though, because whereas like in the previous episode, we talked about how um, the shadow, they kept it very much in the 89 Batman. Yeah. In this, it's like, hey, Indiana Jones, remember those? Yep. Like, that's very interesting to know that like, even in its film portrayal there they still are weirdly grafting like another genre onto this this superhero character and i don't know if that speaks to the fact that like the phantom is just kind of a a nothing character and i don't mean that in a bad way but it's just like he's just a guy in a purple suit that his dad wore before him so it really only the only thing that was setting it apart probably at the time and definitely now would be that its setting was jungle. I think what they're doing is like you said, they're trying to do Indiana Jones, but meets Batman, you know, yeah. and, and, and as far as an elevator pitch goes in 1996, it's not the worst one no. you can throw down. And you get a writer that wrote Indiana Jones. That's right. Jeffrey Bohm yeah. is a writer. Um, Joe Dante also played a big hand in this movie's yes. development over the years. His take on it was originally going to be much more comedic. And yes. his comment about the finished product was that, like, it's not that they took the comedy out. It's just that I would have played it differently. I mean, I think his guy was going to possibly be Bruce Campbell. Yes. You know, so they were going to go, I think, more camp with it. And it's like the jokes are kind of literally still there, but they're just not executed in the same way. I think it's funny um, because in this way and in this way only, the Phantom and Slumber Party Massacre 
are the same <laughs> in that like you had a script that was written for one purpose and then you had a director come in that didn't read it that way but still shot the script there is another movie that fits this bill oh really that is alien resurrection famously joss whedon you know, because the jokes are in the movie. Okay, right. But you have a French director completely misunderstanding how to execute them. That's and amazing. And you get this weird, unsettling movie. Yeah, well, and that's crazy because it's like you kind of wonder, like, creatively, you've worked on you work on things, like, and you wonder, like, where do breakdowns that big happen? Even like language barriers, you feel like shouldn't get in the way that much when you're working at the level of something like an alien resurrection you think but it's weird and i don't know if it's people being too trying to be too precious about what they're bringing to the table that they don't want to like you know the the director that they eventually got here didn't want to argue it i don't know i don't know because it's it, it's to me it's very funny that like you could shoot a very like because i can see so many ways where with the same material that's being presented the setups you could just tweak them a little bit and they'd be played for comedy i think it's a matter of a new creative um sort of force coming in and not feeling secure enough to sort of take ownership of it yeah. you know what i mean like in the case of alien resurrection you know you have a french director um who you know hasn't made an English language movie. He's being handed a script that was written by this hotshot yeah. Hollywood screenwriter at the time, wrote Toy Story. I know he's sort of uncredited, but whatever. Joss right. Whedon was yeah. a name even then. And so, you know, you've got a, this French director who's making successful, like, art films. Yeah, and, and known for a visual style or, right. or, or a visual creativity. He's not going to fuck with the words. Yeah. He's just going to be like, well, put the words on the screen. And right. it, it's about not taking ownership of it. Like, if you're this new director and you're coming in and you don't feel like you have a feel for whatever is going on comedically, yeah. you just take it out. Right. But I think there's just a fear there of fucking it up right well but now for the phantom it's almost something that's a, a, a credit to it now like it, i feel like the, the the disparity between the tones make this movie feel more authentic to the kind of movie i would have expected i agree and i think honestly the guy they get to be the phantom executes the jokes in a weird way that i love yes it, it's not as far as parodying adam west as Batman. Right. But a lot of the manner of speaking and the kind of assured this borderline on cocky, but still weirdly like affable. Like it's it, this kind of weird like mix is pulled off so well. And I can see it going horribly wrong if they leaned into like a comedy part of it. Yes. Like it feels very like authentic in a way and that's weird again weird to say because he's wearing purple and a domino mask and riding a horse and it's like so talking about how it feels authentic well let's just talk about it since we're bringing it up the, the phantom here is played by billy zane and i am kind of a billy zane fan i've really Me come too. to appreciate his quirky style of acting over the years just a little side note personal story i got to 
have a night out on the town with Billy Zane. Oh. Uh, when the movie um, Blood Rain, a terrible film. Oh, yes. Which yes, he yes. is in. But I um, worked at Cinephile Video, and one of the regulars that would come in was this guy who was good friends with Billy Zane. And we would talk, you know, all the time. And he was like, hey, I'm going out for a night with Billy to the premiere of Blood Rain, and then we're going to go to this club. You want to tag along? And I was like, yeah, hell I yeah, I do. <laughs> I get to hang out with a phantom? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I got to hang out with Billy Zane for the night and it was really cool. They were giving away these like swag that were these necklaces with like a crystal that had blood in it, like <laughs> real blood for blood rain. Oh. And he, he was really super nice and he was very uh, cool to me and um, I had a good time. So I'm a Billy Zane fan. After this, he's going to famously do Titanic and be the villain in that. Right, I was going to say, he's going to be labeled forever as like kind of the smarmy jerk which is too bad because yeah. i think he deserved better than that here he's the heroic lead but you know speaking to our point about how the comedy is deployed in this movie like his line deliveries yes is just so perfectly odd yes i mean i feel like you know you're you're putting this guy in a purple bodysuit and to billy zane's credit like he worked the fuck out for this movie like he is in great shape oh yeah there because there's like one time you see him without his like shirt on like yeah. i think sitting like down and you, and yeah he is cut whenever the phantom's on screen like maybe once or twice you kind of like go like oh this is pretty absurd but then once you get past that initial moment like it works. He makes it work. Yeah. I mean, I think he seriously has a superhero physique and he's just wearing a tight bodysuit. Yes. Like it, it is a literal translation of the Phantom costume. Yeah. They've added some detailing on it. Yeah. A little texturing. So it's not just spandex. Right. But it's definitely not. It's not the Keaton or Kilmer Batman suits either. It's not no. the noticeably like fake, like six pack and stuff like Right. There's some texture there that hints at that. But yeah, it's got to be a, a contender for like most faithful translation from page to screen for a mid 90s movie. Like the fact that they just leaned into it is pretty impressive. There's a lot about this movie that I really appreciate the schutzpah of the fact that they just went for it. Yep. You know, like love this movie or hate it. But I mean, it is just really taking the whole ethos and aesthetic of the comic strip and just really leaning into it in a way that I feel like comic book movies just weren't doing no. at this point at all. Like, and I kind of love this movie for it. And it's yep. like, if you don't like it, then you just don't like the Phantom. Yeah. You're not willing to buy into any of it. Yeah. But I feel like if you are up for that kind of thing, like this movie delivers what you want. Yeah. And and one thing to be said for it is it is PG. I mean, like there I think they say shit once, maybe. All deaths are handled in either very just like guy falls down yeah. way, or they are so special effectsy, like cartoonish you hear all the time you know like well why does everything have to be dark or why does everything have to be and it, and it feels like this movie was a either a very early on answer to that question about like why did you know like those batman like batman returns why did that need to be so dark or even say something like the shadow or this could be held up as an example of why everything goes dark 
Yes. Because, you know, the one-two punch of this and then probably Batman and Robin, you know, you can't do the kid-friendly stuff that, that doesn't hit or whatever. And not that this is just an insanely weird concept that, like, you have to get on board <laughs> yeah. for it to have any gravity. It's a very simple setup, but it, the buy-in feels huge. It does. That is, I think you nailed it right there. It's the buy-in for this feels huge. Yeah. And it's kind of because it's a hat on the hat kind of thing, yep. right? You know, because it's like, okay, we've got a jungle adventure, but he's also a superhero, sort of. Yeah. And he wears this costume. We're willing to buy into dudes who go into jungles to raid tombs or whatever. Yeah. Or are wearing loincloths. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you either have your like pith helmet and like khakis in jungles. Cool. Or loincloths. That's your jungle attire for your heroes. <laughs> you throw a guy in a superhero costume into it and it's a hard one to swallow. And to be fair, like the other thing is the actual tagline for the, the Phantom the comic is the ghost who walks, which wisely they they do say in this movie. But I, I think they went with slam evil because they're like, we can't put a poster with the ghost who walks and then like show this guy because what is that like for the character? The idea is he's immortal and the crazy costume is supposed to be he looks not human or he he's supposed to be more mythical what I'm dancing around is the fact that that was Lee Falk's shorthand for, well, it's a bunch of natives in Africa. So put them in a weird costume and they're going to think monster ghost. Oh, okay. And he, thus the legend becomes, you can't kill him. But in reality, uh, the, in this world, what it is, is it is a mantle passed down from father to son. So the phantom seems like he's always been there. But it's really just a different person taking on the mantle. Which, like, is hilarious to me throughout this whole movie that people can't just figure that yes. out. Like, the most simplest answer to this is, it's someone else in the same costume. How is this man still alive? I killed him! Especially because in what this movie thankfully avoids... And you almost owe it to yourself to go watch the first chapter in the old serial. I will if I can find it. I'm sure it's got to be pretty easy to find because, okay, it's Kit's father in the first chapter and it is an old man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's still running around in the costume and he gets killed. And as he's dying, it's like my my son. And then like Tom Tyler or like the like Western star comes in to be like the next person. And you're like, no way. No one would ever. I mean, it was like John Carradine played the Phantom right. and then like <laughs> Steve Reeves. Yeah, came in. It was like, OK, I'm taking over. It's like <laughs> and they're always surrounded by like some of the same people that are, again, not supposed to know that something has changed. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, no. So at least in this movie, like we do see his father, but it's in the form of like a ghostly. Whether really there or just he's talking to his imagination we never see the elder father 
in the costume and then try and play that off that it's the same. You know? I'm glad they didn't put poor Patrick Magoo in who plays who his was. father yes. in the movie to into that purple suit. That yeah. would have been a humiliation that no British actor should endure. Well, you can see a version of that in the first chapter of the serial, and it is funny. Like It is unintentionally hilarious. But again, that's another thing that makes this movie kind of a weird thing that you have to get on board with is they are going to rely on the fact that you will accept immediately this premise that, okay, as far as anyone in the, the jungle knows, the Phantom is this unkillable, centuries-old, whatever, presence, this protector. And there, there's no trickery being shown to show that part of it, right? Like, we're not, we're not seeing, we're just seeing a, a guy in a, in a costume. And then they're asserting the legend. Right. And can I also add another thing just about the Phantom as an iconic character, if that's what we're going to call him, that I always struggled with is like, he's called the Phantom. Right. Okay. But he's a guy in a purple yep. suit. You think Phantom, you think like some ghostly like vestments or, you know, like let's lean into that kind of look. The Phantom almost works more like the Shadow. Yeah, you're going to think of a cloak or like, I mean, he's got a skull ring. Like, why not a skull mask? Right. But again, it all probably comes back down to what were the, the aesthetics of the time. You don't put a skull mask on the hero because that's going to tell the people he's the bad guy. Exactly. No, I understand. You're right. Like putting it into historical context right. and knowing pulps and all that you know it's sort of similar to which is in like the early days of slasher movies right yeah like the important thing was tie your slasher to a holiday yep okay but at the same time you want to give your slasher a look yes. so i don't know what do we got lying around a hockey mask like right. what the fuck does hockey have to do with right. summer camp killers right exactly yeah it's almost the opposite you see a hockey mask and you're not thinking hot warm and sunny Again, I'm going to say this as a way that it sounds like I'm being critical of the movie, but really this is something I like about the movie. But they don't attempt to convey any of this context to you. They don't try and, and, and explain or rationalize the look of the character in this movie. Now, maybe if this movie is made now, they're going to like find a way to... like explain why someone called the phantom would wear this particular suit that's not here at all and i don't want it here but this is a world i'm very comfortable with this is a kind of storytelling that i love so i'm on board you don't need to convince me problem is i think you needed to convince other people right like you and i are weirdos who enjoy the the incongruous yeah. nature of these early art forms yeah. and characters yeah but we're freaks and the rest of the world they need more explanation as to why there's a man running around in a purple suit in right. the jungle fighting indiana jones characters who are villains right <laughs> and, and and that's the other thing here right is you have a story where Unlike, again, the previous movie we talked about, The Shadow, what they did there was they leaned in a direction of the villain being from a foreign country that came to America. Now, the Phantom is the opposite. He's an American that is protecting another place. Very rarely was the Phantom stateside or in the U.S. So usually his villains, I mean, there was a lot of like treasure hunters, grave robbers, you know, but there was also a lot of villains that were more 
uh, based in like African tribes and stuff like that. And I'm sure they early on were like, let's not. Even in 1996, that would have been bad optically. Right. So they wisely like leaned into the whole like, yeah, treasure hunters, modern pirates of the time. Because pirates, pirates were also really big in the uh, Phantom comics. If you Google like the Phantom and like just do like an image search, one of the first things that will come up will be him like on a pirate ship, probably like swashbuckling. Look, I love pirates. Uh, they're one of my favorite subgenres. But one of my complaints of this movie is I didn't really need the pirates. No. I didn't really need them in the end. I think it just would have been cool if it was the Phantom is up against like an Indiana Jones character. Right. Like let's make Indiana Jones the villain of this story. Yeah. Not literally Indiana Jones, no. but in, I mean, I think the James Remar character is kind of like yes. that. And I like that idea. Like, Hey, you love Indiana Jones. Well, what if he's the villain? Because yeah. Indiana Jones could be the villain. He's going into jungles and stealing things. In Raiders Lost Ark, after the big opening scene, you've got him teaching his class. And then the guy comes to him. Like, that's kind of almost the setup we have here Yes. with the villain. You've put in James Remar as uh, Indiana Jones, as the guy that's out there doing it, and then put Treat Williams in loving, amazingly named Xander Drax in yes. with the best line delivery in the movie as that guy. Like, the guy, the guy who's got the money, he's got the right. finances. The benefactor. But is also really the villain. Like, he's the one right. with the master plan. Like... If they could have just kept it right there, and they mostly do, but there is the weird um, little like, oh yeah, hey, remember pirates? <laughs> Part at the end, like you know, these are all very familiar elements to pulp stories and to action movies. You just usually don't see them all in this particular combination. Well, let's talk about the movie a little bit. Yeah. I think this movie, for the most part, is very enjoyable in the middle section of it yes. from like right after the beginning, right through to the third act. One thing that is pretty bad is this rushed sort of opening yep. we get where we're trying to lay out the legend of the phantom. Yep. All they're really trying to do is to sell you on the concept of this is a mantle that's being passed down, right. but it's done in this really fast montage where this little boy, his ship is raided by pirates and his father's killed and then he's saved by natives and he takes on the mantle of the phantom and this is going to be something that's passed down right. through generations. But and since we're seeing him as a little kid, we're like, oh, so this is the this is Billy Zane as a kid, yes. but it's not. No. This is back much further. So, yeah, you're 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 really muddying the waters like when you should be adding some clarity. Well, and why even bother with this if you're going to lay this all out in dialogue and stuff? Because right. Billy Zane more or less explains this several times throughout the movie. Right. And it's not like there's a, an extra step in there where we then do see like this isn't a movie where, OK, now we've set the table. Now we've got to recruit Billy Zane from America where he's gone to be educated and he reluctantly accepts them. No, we we meet Billy Zane full in the mantle. I'd understand this opening if it became then a story about trying to get the reluctant guy that does not want to come back to living in a cave in Africa or whatever this thing is right. because he's been to America. I get the opening then. 
I don't get it when, yeah, you just cut to immediately, oh, now our Phantom is the Phantom. Yeah, and I feel like if they did this again, which they never will, um, but if if they did do it again, I feel like that would be the approach. Yeah. You know, like, he's reluctant, he's in America, He maybe he doesn't even know that this is a thing. Right, yes. Like, oh my God, my father's dead, and then you find out your father was a costumed crazy? Yeah, you would would do the thing where you do an opening credits thing with the previous Phantom on his final mission, the one that kills him, Yeah, and then, yeah, you get the, the guy that's like, like, no, I don't want to go back. Or, yeah, I don't know that I was from there and stuff. And to be fair, I'm really glad they didn't do that because, like, maybe that would be a good movie. But I've also seen every version of that movie. Totally. I love that they just they just are like, well, yep, this is it. When we get into the movie proper, I'm immediately starting to enjoy myself yes. because, you know, we have these treasure hunters Quill and his sidekick and Quill is played by James Remar who I fucking love and Casey Smasco is his like more sort of nebbishy henchman also love him from yeah. three o'clock high like big fan of both of these guys and you know they're just kind of like quibbling yes. thuggish bad guys James Remar is like one I just wish his every character just had his actual name I love that name. Like James Remar, like he should, that should be his character name no matter what. And it's great. I mean, we're in 1938, Bengala. Bengala is not a real place, right? I don't think so. I believe that even in the comic strip, they kind of wisely like, we're like, we'll create a kind of an amalgam of different places. But I could be wrong. It would be shocking if that's the one thing they decided to be authentic about. I'm pretty sure it's not because when I put it into my Word document, it It just called you a racist. (laughs) Yeah, no, it did not recognize it as a word. So that's how I go by things. That's how that's how deep my research goes. It's good. No, that's good. No, that that would be the way to do it. (laughs) But I just love everything that's kind of going on here because they're trying to find this like hidden temple and they're like going over a rope bridge with their truck and they've got this little kid as a guide. And they make him drive the truck over the rope bridge. Love it. That's got to be the perfect example of where this movie probably tone wise, why this version works so well, because it is directed like this is as tense as can be like this might as well be sorcerer, like trying to like cross. Right. <laughs> yeah. But the people acting it and like the way it is like written, this is a comedy because They are going to like, well, the truck might be too heavy. This bridge doesn't look secure. And then cut to kid driving. And these guys are such assholes that they like send this little kid. You know, he can't even see like above the steering wheel, really. Like, And you can see with a different director or someone else taking that and playing it up as for comedy. And it still reads as funny to me. But I really do get the feeling that the director in this case was like, this is tense. <laughs> I love that. I love it. We should give a little credit to the director, Simon Windsor. Again, another Australian. So Yes, that's true, because he was like Quigley Down Under. Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so both of our pulp uh, superhero movies are directed by Australians. Man. And would they both have deputized cabbies? Like <laughs> No lessons learned no. from the shadow. We're, we're trying it again. Well, and you know, it is also worth saying that the screenwriter, Jeffrey Bohm, was no like slouch you know i mean again neither is david kep right exactly and and i mean jeffrey bone kind of has this unique place in i would say film history in that like he followed up shane black on lethal weapons like he was the guy he rewrote shane black on two 
then I think yes. he might have written three solo. Not to say that that like means they are the qualities, anything to, you know, whatever, but like, that's probably no small gig at the time. Well, he also did uh, Last Crusade. Last Crusade. And he came in like late in the game, like when they were having a lot of trouble working it out and stuff. And I, I read, you know, both Lucas and Spielberg credit him for being the one to pull it together and stuff. So Again, this is not, we're not dealing with like someone who's like this is one of his first jobs and like you really feel like they put it in the hands of someone that they're trusting for like big movies and it shows. I mean, as ridiculous as it as it is at times, like there's a level of cleverness to like tell us that these villains are as scummy as they are in this way. Yeah, it's like an opposite of the save the cat moment. I mean, we've already seen them be sort of assholeish, but then this is just yeah. the puts them over the top of we're like, okay, they're irredeemable. Right. Yeah. And then like once they get across the bridge, they're nearing the temple or whatever and the little kid recognizes that these woods are where the phantom is yeah. and so, you know, we get our first sort of hints of how the natives feel about him. Right. And then when they realize the kid the little kid is so afraid of the phantom that he's not going to go any yeah, further. He's not scared of them anymore. And then they're like, well, let's kill him then. Right. And then James Remar's like, no, we may need him for something. Tie him up and put him in the back of the truck. Yep. This is all a setup so that the Phantom can save the yes. kid later again on the rope bridge. Yep. So, I mean, I, you know, the way this is all sort of structured, I think, is is effective. I mean, this feels very much like out of the, the Spielberg style of, con of story construction. There's nothing frivolous. Everything really does build to something else. Right. All the frivolity is saved for the character of the Phantom himself. Right. Which is another funny thing, right? Like, yeah, which I love. Again, whether intentional or not, like <laughs> the villains, as we see them, we know they're like looking for a treasure. They're looking for one of the skulls now. Yes. Okay. Because we're basically dealing with crystal skulls. They're not crystal skulls, but. That's more or less the the driving MacGuffin-ish. Well, it's not really. But, like, that's the driving plot point is there's these skulls. Yeah, and one criticism I will lay on the movie and the script is, so we have the skulls, which are the MacGuffin, right? Yeah. But then, like, James Remar is a member of this brotherhood, the Sang Brotherhood. Yeah. And, you know, he's got this tattoo on, on him. And this is all basically, like plot stuff so that later the Christy Swanson character is going to go investigate them based on this one little symbol. Okay. Yes. You've got kind of too many things moving the plot. Yeah. Well, and, and, and this also does kind of make the, what I still consider to be a mistake in the 89 Batman, the idea of tying Joker into the origin of Batman by literally having him be the one that killed the parents. Well, James Remar, like is not afraid of the phantom because he's convinced he's killed the phantom. Turns out he's just killed the previous one. So Billy Zane's dad. So it's almost such a cast off element in this movie that like, it's yeah. weird that they even added it in. Like, I guess it was the, the idea was that like James Remar's character is like, it's trying to say he's not afraid of the phantom because he's already killed the phantom, but he could have just easily not known the legend. It doesn't pay off in a way that like adds any extra weight and especially then he's not even the primary villain so then it's yeah. like wait your dad must have not been that good like if he he got killed by the henchmen of the villain right exactly i don't think that's conveying what they're maybe wanted it to james remar later will reveal that he has the belt holster of 
Billy Zane's father's yeah. phantom. And, you know, Billy Zane reclaims it at the end right. right before he dispatches him. He doesn't actually dispatch him. Xander Drax ends up doing yeah. it inadvertently. But, you know, it's just to sort of set up this moment where he's like, this was my father's. And right. He reclaims it. It's interesting because you can tell that these the character of the Phantom, and the character of the Shadow came from very similar roots is like the idea that they each carry two guns, despite the fact that like nothing in the character as they are presented seems to need guns. Like, why does right. this Phantom, the ghost who walks or rides a horse, why does he have two pistols like you know it's it's these weird things where like they're keeping all of the trappings that have always been there it doesn't add up but i don't care that it doesn't add up well to that point too it's like he has a horse and he has a dog yeah like usually it's one or the other you right. either have a horse or a dog yeah. his dog's name is devil his horse is named hero yep. And like, you know, they're going to basically do one thing each yep. during the course of the movie. But yeah, they're just not letting go of anything right. that was in the character from the comic strip. No, not at all. And uh, it's funny because I associate Devil, the, the wolf that is a dog, with the Phantom for sure. I know he has a horse, but I, I guess that was one of those things where a lapse in my own like knowledge is I, I never realized that that was such a you know, a part of it until after seeing this movie and then I'm like, Oh wait, no, he really did. And it's like, it felt like that was kind of Lone Ranger territory. And it's interesting that they lean on it so much here too, because again, it also speaks to like, how is he even conveying that? Like this whole like legend of the ghost. Like, I mean, I know there's like ghostly horseback riders, you know, it's another one of those things where, but it's also like the most pristine white horse you've ever seen. I mean, literally he's riding a white horse. Like, He's the hero. Like, you get it. <laughs> but, yeah. like, it doesn't do anything to his mystique. It's a, it doesn't add to, like, his mystique at all. Well, it's his mode of transportation, which is why I would have probably kept the horse and gotten rid of the dog. Yeah. Or the wolf, rather. Because, you know, the wolf has a couple of moments where yeah. you know, he almost gets James Remar or something. And the Phantom's like, if he moves, eat him. Right. Again, the devil, the wolf is like, you know, his, is very much his companion. And in this movie, Phantom goes stateside. Like, that's where you want the wolf, right? Because then it's really odd because it's like, well, you know, people are like, nice dog. And I guess I just probably pitched the comedy again. Like, I didn't mean to. <laughs> well, there are still some kind of vestiges of the comedy in here, or maybe not. Like, when uh, James Remar and Casey size Mosco go into the tomb they've got like another guy with them mm -hmm. and that guy gets strangled to death by a skeleton yes <laughs> which is amazing i love that it's like it's almost like an actual jump scare like i i can't remember but i i wouldn't be surprised if in the theater the first time that i didn't like jump like because it really works that way <laughs> and it doesn't make sense, right? No. Well, I mean, it's like they're trying to do the beginning of Raiders of the yes. Lost Ark, but instead of having, you know, traps and stuff, it's literally going to be a supernatural thing, I guess. Where the but was it? I don't know, man. See, that, that was the thing. It was funny because it was like, my thought was, okay, he's the ghost who walks. Like, so then like, but we know he's not a ghost. So it's like. Here's where you're going to do all the trickery, right? The stage magic where it's like, right. how do we set, how do we Scooby-Doo this? So it like, things look like it's ghost related, but it's not. No, maybe, maybe it was ghost. Maybe it just 
was spring-loaded. Like, we don't know. Because if I'm following the movie correctly, when there are supernatural elements, they are unlocked and unleashed later. They weren't currently, like, they were dormant now. <laughs> but who knows? Who cares? It was awesome. I think this henchman was just such a bumbling idiot that he, like, ran himself into a skeleton and got himself him? strange. That, that would be, <laughs> see, that would be the best part is that, like, one of them was like, it's a ghost. And it's like, no, the guy was an idiot. So the Phantom shows up riding his white horse and, um... I just want to talk about the stunt work in this movie because there's a bunch of horse stunts, which I feel are quite impressive. Mm -hmm. You know, this opening scene when he first shows up, he's like jumping onto branches and doing flips and then getting back on the horse and stuff. It's cool, old school sort of stunt work. Unfortunately, you can tell the stunt man from Billy Zane very uh, clearly. The stunt people are very noticeable and they're doing great work and I don't want to disparage them at all, but they don't match too well to the heroes. It's another thing where probably HD and stuff has not done it any favors. Totally. Because um, the first time that you see him like grab a branch and like basically like swing around it and then land back or whatever, you can see the branch separate from the bar. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that would have always been been noticeable but like this time it was like oh hey there's the the gymnastics bar you know like but at the same time though i feel like they actually pull off a couple of really impressive stunts the seaplane sequence at us later on the phantom after he rescues our female lead they are trying to escape and it's great because this seaplane is like rocketing over the jungle basically yeah. and uh the hero the horse and devil the wolf are following underneath the seaplane yeah. and at one point the phantom like climbs out on the platoon of the the seaplane and there's a stuntman really doing this you can see they really mm-hmm. did fly a plane over a jungle yes and he jumps onto a horse and then christy swanson who's the female lead climbs out onto the pontoon and then a stunt woman jumps onto the horse yeah they're good stunts yeah no and that's that's something that i again like i i think it's one of those movies that in my memory when i hadn't watched it in a while my memory of it felt cheaper than the movie actually is. Like, I mean, I know it wasn't but like top of the line big budget, but it was obviously not a small budget. And um, the director, what he does bring is he gives it a sense of scope that I think might be beyond its budget. And that's good. Well, and unlike The Phantom, this doesn't feel like a completely stage bound movie. There are moments when it does, and that's unfortunately, I think, things that work against this movie, especially in the climax. We're going to just be on a soundstage yes. in a very, like... I mean, we're in the legend, Legends of the Hidden Temple. Yes. <laughs> yes. The next, like, stage over, like, they're, like, climbing the aggro crag and, like, you know, right. like, you know, some kids are <laughs> winning, like, you know, whatever. But, like, yeah, and that's also one of those moments where you wonder if, like, as they were making the movie, they were like trimming the budget back. It just feels like they sort of default to what most bigger budget yeah. sort of action movies would do at the time. Like, oh, we'll have our climax in a sound stage so yeah. we can control everything. But like these moments when we're out in the jungle 
you know, doing stuff. It's, it's these moments that the movie I feel really comes alive yeah. and really works. Like I kind of wish they could have just kept it all right. in this sort of environment. And this is the point where I feel like where you and I would be like, okay, we're in. I feel like this could be the break point though, for a lot of people though, because where the costume looks the most ridiculous is sometimes in the best scenes of this movie if yes. you were just thinking about it from the point of view of like, why, right. <laughs> why is this what he's wearing? You know, and, 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 and I, I seriously like think that that's exactly where the movie probably breaks down with audiences. Cause you know, as I'm watching the movie, my younger son is eight and he is super into like all the superhero movies. And he watched most of the Phantom with me, but he was really having trouble with like, understand because he kept asking he's like why does he look like that why does he uh -huh. and, and i've never heard him in all of the movies we've watched together i've never he's never asked me like why is such and such character dressed like that and i'm like well you just answered my own question about this movie like because you can't you're not on board and then that's fine you know but like you know there must have been people that were watching this movie in the theater and they're rolling into like minute 10 or 15 where we're at and are like oh boy this is what we're in for. Whereas I'm like, yes. <laughs> it's a really uh, acquired taste. And I mean, is it ridiculous? Yes. Yeah. But I mean, that's kind of what people like you and I that's what like I want, about though, it. From it. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. I don't need it to be grounded. I need it to be confusing to the point of entertainment. Like, right. <laughs> where you're <laughs> like, I have no idea why you're doing all of this. But I'm here for it. One part of the movie that I don't necessarily need and think that would not be um, well received in 2022 is the Phantom is basically friends with these English colonialists. Yes. Yeah. His commissioner, Gordon, is like a colonialist. No shade on the actor no. or whatever. Like and it's it's presented as a good thing, I guess. But... Yeah. They're using uh, like Gunga Din levels of yeah. shorthand of just like, no, this is all fine. And they even make a point of showing like with the soldiers, the colonialists who are, you know, effectively an occupying force. I mean, it's hard. They put a couple of like the natives mixed in like side standing side by side, you know, and I think that's the best you can probably do without either making the whole story about that, because that is something that some later phantom like comics have done more modern ones is it had been about the phantom opposing like forces of colonialism well that's not this movie <laughs> no and i think that yeah this was the best the best option they had well and in fairness they don't really get too much into the native element either no you know i mean other than this little boy who becomes one of his helpers and the phantom has another a guy who's like his Alfred, yeah. who's a native. Who's also read in on it. Like, he's the only character that calls him, I think, Ghost Who Walks. Yes. And it's played off as like, well, that's a joke. Like, that's him kind of ribbing me because he knows the secret that I'm not immortal. They, they're clearly just kind of sidestepping the whole yeah. issue. And I feel that that it's fine yeah. in that way. You know, this scene with the colonial guy made me a little uncomfortable just knowing how people would react to it now. Well, and it almost doesn't need to be there because they only go to yeah. this like camp once, right? Isn't it only this yeah, scene? Yeah, and this character comes back again in a, like near the end of the movie yeah. just to add his two cents into some development. But yeah, it doesn't need to be there at all. But again, it almost feels like they were like, superhero movie, where's our Commissioner Gordon? Where's, where's yeah. the guy our hero talks to? 
because that's how it's presented. It's that they already have a relationship because like the guy is in his little hut, turns around and the phantom is just sitting there. And it's the joke about, well, why don't you just use the front door? And it's like, well, the yeah. window's better. And, you know, so it's like they're trying to show like, OK, but then again, so does this guy must not believe he's a ghost, right? It, it feels like it r- would run completely counter to what you're trying to to do. I mean, I think we're supposed to assume that, you know, there are certain people who figured it out, yeah. but they're just not saying it. I mean, it's kind of that thing in Batman where at a certain point yeah. you have to assume that Commissioner Gordon knows who he is, but right. just doesn't want to just doesn't want to know. Right. Well, exactly. They're doing the same thing that speaking of Batman, like where They'll always do the scenes where, again, Burton leaned on this heavier than I think anyone else has. But like where like this, there would be like this debate of among the citizenry. Is he a monster? Is he a man? Is he, you know, like it's that urban legend aspect of it, right? That's what they're doing here. But he's wearing purple and a domino mask. Like I, I, I hate to keep harping back to it. Right. But. There's no way it's not a costume. Right. And ergo, if it is a costume, someone else could be wearing it. Right. You don't jump to he's a ghost. Yeah. Like I can see in like that first rooftop scene with Batman when like, He's fighting the guys and like, you know, if it's dark and he's got his cape over him and you're only seeing parts of his face, you might not see enough to be like, I don't know what it was. Okay, fair. I can, I'll, I'll buy that a little bit. No, with Phantom. If that's a ghost. You've got some weird ideas about what ghosts what a ghost look is. like. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's also where this movie does fall apart a little bit for me is while most of the elements of the script are pretty tight, there are these things that feel like beats they felt like they had to hit yeah that for movie reasons they felt like they needed to hit but not because of the story and 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 this is one of them we didn't need it the character doesn't come back to save the day right well and to that point too we're gonna find out that uh xander drax has like mobsters in his employ right so like once we go to new york city Instead of these like Tomb Raider henchmen, we're going to get some mobster henchmen, which I enjoy because like one of the mobsters is David Proval, who is an actor I love. He gets some funny moments in the movie, but you know, we're getting straight up. We're back to the shadow or the Rocketeer or Dick Tracy, pinstripe suits, fedoras, the whole nine. At some point after this scene, we meet Catherine Zeta-Jones character sala who is a like airplane pilot she's like like uh what are they what are the aviatrix i think it was like the term of the time where it was like a great word i know it's like is she an aviator no 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 (laughs) so this is 96 so how far after goldeneye was this movie one year okay i really feel like there's some zenya on a top going on oh for sure yeah with the way she's throwing punches and it's not to the complete sadomasochistic like she's deriving pleasure from it but those characters are very similar initially and i can't help but wonder if there was like well that was really big now all our villains are 
guys, what about a lady that can punch another lady? We need one of those. And we also need it because we're going to be introduced to the love interest of the movie, Diana Palmer, as played by Christy Swanson. She's definitely not a Margot Lane. We, you know, we're introduced to her that she's kind of been out sort of adventuring on her own in like Alaska anyway. Yeah. And, you know, her uncle is the guy that owns the newspaper. And I think they're pretty much trying to make her look like Amelia Earhart. Yes. It only dawned on me after watching it this time that I was like, because Christy Swanson is, you know, especially of films at this time is very recognizable. The way that they've got her hair done is completely different than any Christy Swanson because she's the original Buffy. You know, she's yeah. blonde. She's usually very like preppy, pretty looking characters. And here she's got this kind of shorter wavy hair and it's it is 100 Amelia Earhart. i do feel that the movie becomes a little less interesting once we bring kit to new york i don't dislike it and like as we mentioned you know we get this scene where he's being dropped off at the newspaper to talk to christy swanson's uncle and you know he only has bengali money to give to the cab driver and the cab driver's like i'm gonna need more than that and so he gives him these gems right. and basically buys the guy's loyalty and what i don't understand here is he, he's already as the phantom rescued or saved christy swanson right yes which i love that scene yes. in the boat because christy swanson is given the task to go to investigate this spider tattoo right which that's has right to yes. be the flimsiest reason for a character to go journey to the jungle like her uncle is like can you look into this spider tattoo and it's like he would go himself but like he can't trust being away from the newspaper because of Xander Drax. Right. And it's like they set up, there's this scene where he's having this party, a fundraiser party, right? Yeah. And this is where we're introduced to Christy Swanson. We also meet her like paramour friend who's this sort of foppish dude that doesn't really do much in the movie. No. I mean, he's brilliant in that first scene where he won't stop like eating like the martini olive or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And like he seems so bored but like thinks he's being so suave and she is just slathering mayo on like a, a bologna, bologna sandwich. sandwich yeah like it, it was really fun like this is one of those moments where you go like i don't know but i guarantee you they were having fun like i know treat williams was having fun we'll get to that but like it feels like everyone here just had to be just having a blast because they're all doing their characters and giving them all their own little memorable touches well yeah and the point of the scene really is that treat williams shows up to this fundraiser and the uncle who runs the paper, paper doesn't like him because he knows that he's has shady dealings or whatever yeah. and he like calls him out right to his yeah. face in front of everybody calls him out in front of the police commissioner in this movie Yes, and the mayor. And in this movie, the police commissioner is going to turn out to be crooked because he rats out yeah. Christy Swanson. You think that they're setting it up that Treat Williams is going to have the newspaper guy killed. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, and we even see Treat Williams has this, I don't know if you want to call it an assassination device, but it's a microscope that has like razor blades that pop out of the eyepieces. Yeah, I kind of think it's not meant to kill right like it's meant right. to just which seems weird you seem like you do that to someone you don't want them still alive unless that's because they're never going to touch you but like 
It's pretty awesome. It's really just a scene that exists to show how bad of a guy yeah. he is because like so this character gets called into his office and you think, I don't know, the character gave some information to the newspaper or whatever. And he's like, I didn't do anything. And he's like, cool, cool. Can you look in this microscope for <laughs> which me? I've never, which <laughs> if I know who I've been working for and I know that I've really double crossed him, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Dude, even if you were like looking this microscope for me, I'm like, no way. Yeah, no, 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 I'm not doing it. Can you just take a look at this? Yeah. And he's like written liar on the thing. Out of focus. So the guy has to do it to himself. He has to turn the focus knob, which jabs blades into his eyes. Yeah. And like Treat Williams, as you've already sort of implied, is chewing up scenery like it's going out of style. This guy, like he tap danced through this movie in like a way that you don't see anymore i mean not really anyways like he is going for it and what's funny about it is treat williams is i know he's played tough guys in movies treat williams is the direct-to-video tom berenger when tom berenger was like the big screen tom berenger yeah which is a long way of saying like at some point treat williams took over the substitute movies <laughs> did he really i think so i think he was because tom berenger was one and then somewhere in two and three, Treat Williams was the substitute. Wow. And he's not an imposing guy. His voice is very like, he doesn't have a gruff voice. His voice is kind of high up. He's like, I'm going to kill you. I know. <laughs> so I love it because it's like, they're not doing anything to like make him seem tougher or anything. He is just loving this role. And I love him for it. I feel like they could have gone more the the Rocketeer with Timothy Dalton, right? Like he's the suave guy that like then you realize it's all an act and you know yeah. he's a Nazi. There's never that turn, which he's just from moment one. He, you're like, like if that mustache could be twirled, it would be TV twirling <laughs> it, and I love it. Yeah, let's just kind of uh, hang around in the New York stuff. I know we're jumping around. See, I guess I forgot because it's like I forget that we go to New York meet Chrissy Swanson. She goes to Africa. Phantom saves her. Then Phantom comes to New York, right? Yeah, because he hangs out with her for a minute after he saves her and then she's like, well, I'm going back to New York. And so he okay. goes and follows after her. Yeah. I totally forgot that that was the order of events, but it has to be because that's when he recognizes her as the Phantom and then we'll learn that he has been stateside plenty of times. He, he was educated in America. And we're going to find out they went to school together and had some sort of romance. And then he... She should have recognized him. Right. And then he disappeared mysteriously. We're going to find out it's because his father died. Yeah. You know, so she's kind of mad at him for that. So, you know, they have some tension. Which makes him seem kind of dumb for not paying the cabbie with U.S. money. Like, they're not doing the fish out of water thing like he's never been here. He should have known. I also want to bring up another thing about the Phantom lore. Like, it's built into the lore that you need to have a son so that you can carry on yes. the mantle, right? Yes. So you've got a problem here. You've got a little conundrum, okay? Yes. On one hand, you need to be the secret superhero. Mm -hmm. On the other, you need to make sure you have a son. Right. So you need to have a wife. Yeah. Like, you need it. It needs to be part of the mission. Yes. 
and they kind of touch upon that. His ghost dad is going to kind of be like, when are you going to find the right lady to settle down with or whatever? Wingman. His dad's kind of a jerk. He like gives him a hard time. Like when he, when he loses the skull, he's like, you let the skull fall into the hands of Drax. Like, like, God, you're dead and you're hassling me. I know. Which he was really telling you what's like the tortured stuff that's going on in, in Billy's eighth <laughs> mind. It's like his dad basically calling him an incel at times. You know, like you gotta, you gotta meet women, and you would have been good to have a line where he could have been like, "Hey, dad, maybe you could have made this easier then." Totally. Like, why are we like living in a cave? I guess what I'm saying is, if I'm the Phantom at that point, right, and I've rescued. Christy Swanson, we've had this amazing... There's a connection. Yeah, this connection and all of that. Be like, hey, look, it's me, Kit. I'm the Phantom. Yes. This is what I have to do. Yeah. You know, this is why I disappeared. Like, why not just lay it all on the line then? Right. Especially because essentially no one in America has heard... It's not like the Phantom is this worldwide known legend. It's right. Like he's a local protector, essentially. So what's the harm? Right. Yeah. The worst that's going to happen is she's going to be like, uh, no, right. leave to New York and what? Tell people that some guy she knew is running around in the jungle in a purple suit. Like who in New York is going to give a shit? Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because like this is one of the, another one of those moments where it's like they shouldn't have known each other because it really it reflects poorly on her. When Kit shows up and she walks in the room, she recognizes him immediately. It's because it's not like they were childhood friends where, like, maybe she doesn't recognize him anymore. It's like, no, this was within a handful of years. Six years, he says. Six, six years. years. That mask, I don't care. If she recognizes him on site in New York, she's going to know who he is. Well, look, domino masks have always been the most flimsy yes. of superhero disguises. At least with the Phantom, there's a hood that he wears over his hair. You could probably argue then context, right? Like... She's in Africa. Why would she ever expect that this is the guy she went to college with? I mean, other than his voice is exactly the same. And yeah, he does the nothing same to disguise his mannerisms. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, exactly. The much maligned Green Lantern movie got that right. I have to say, like, there will always be a soft spot in my heart for Green Lantern for giving Blake Lively's character that moment on this. Like, she's like, we grew up together. I know exactly who you are. I'm like, thank you. Right. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging that. Like, because now I'm more invested in her as a character because otherwise it's like, I have to buy in that she's super resourceful and super tough, but she's not catching on to this. So I, that that's one thing that this movie does not, um, I feel like it doesn't serve Chrissy Swanson's character well in that, that regard. No, and Christy Swanson's character certainly doesn't bother me no. or anything, but she's not particularly compelling. No. And I feel like, yes, the writing could have served her better. I mean, save for, like, bringing a couple plot elements together, like, you could pretty much remove her character, and you're not going to get a drastically different movie. And because we have, like, a turn to the good from Catherine Zeta-Jones' character, you could still set up like a romance aspect. Exactly. She could be the romantic interest, the villainess who turns, turns heroic good, right. because she falls for him. If memory serves correctly, Diana Palmer is the comic strip character, the Lois Lane. That's what I assume. So I think it was just the, well, she's got to be there. They don't make her a damsel in distress. And for 1996, that's pretty impressive. 
I mean, she may be rescued a couple times, but I, she does a lot on her own. And I like when she's rescued, he has to explain to her that it's a rescue. Right. Yeah, like that's he true. He comes yeah. in, Zeta Jones tries to get the drop on him. And it's a fun scene where he's like, if you point a gun at somebody he like, or he, I don't know, he has some line where he grabs the gun out of her hand when he's not looking at her, which I really like. Yeah. It's a really good move. Yeah. She's not expecting him to just suddenly grab the gun out of her hand. And he's literally come in through a laundry chute, yes, which is yep. amazing. So this purple guy has dropped out of the ceiling of this boat, like in between the two female characters who are like, you know, having some sort of moment. All the pilots are female because he first right. busts into the, I mean, they basically do a screwballs porkies almost moment. Again, it's probably the comedy, right? Yeah. He busts into a women's shower. And they all look at him and then it's like, yeah. and he makes a comment. It's like, is this all women? Like he's not expecting it. Like, and I love it. It's a great little bit, but it's, you know, it's not treated as comedy. And it's Billy Zane's delivery in those moments that I just love. Yes. I just love the way he plays those moments. Yeah. And yeah. Is it the right thing to do? I don't know, but I like it, yes. you know, like whatever he's doing, I like it. Yes. But yeah, when he's rescuing her, she's like, why should I go with you? And he's like, this is a rescue. Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. This yeah. is what we're doing. Yeah. You know, like, like she's not even like, she's like, well, you're just as crazy as they are. Why should I trust you? Like, actually, demonstrably, you might be crazier than the people that are around here. You're dressed like this. They're not. Another moment I like just to jump back to New York is as Kit, he and Christie's foppish friend. Yes. Uh, figure out that the other skull is at the Natural History Museum, okay? And I just want to say, like, where these skulls are, like, these two skulls in the beginning, like, one's in a temple, yeah. one's in a history museum. Like, these are not hard no. things to figure out. Like, maybe the legend of the skulls aren't well known right. or whatever at this point, but it doesn't seem particularly difficult to no. get them. But they do cover it with, a, with one good line with the Natural History Museum. It's not lost. It was just mis mis misplaced. misplaced. It was basically misfiled. Like it's in, it's in the wrong exhibit. They put it in the wrong country exhibit. What is it in? Like a Native American setting or something? Right. Because the the foppish guy remembers it because he saw it like where his parents threw him a birthday party there. Yeah. You know. So <laughs> like yeah, and it's just been sitting there. And I I, I like the idea of like the nod to like <laughs> culturally they just got it wrong. And that's why no one could find it. It's clever. That's a comedy premise. That's not the serious adventure. That Indiana Jones isn't doing that, right? They're going to get that part right because he's going to be a serious archaeologist who's going to know everything. Where it's like, this was like, eh, skull. That would look good there. Again, it's sort of a your mileage may vary on how well that's going to work for you. Yeah. So meanwhile, like Xander Drax has also figured out that the skull is in this museum. Yeah. I mean, they're just setting it up that they're all going to converge yep. at the museum. But what's so great is so Kit and um, Diana are arrive at the museum and they find the skull and he mentions that it's in the wrong context. She's like, well, how are we going to get it or whatever? I, I can talk to somebody and maybe pull some strings. Yeah. But he just takes a stanchion and yeah. smashes the display, yep. the glass display and like grabs the skull out. And you're like, where are the security? Yep. And then 
Treat Williams and his mobster goons show up pretending they're the security. Yes. And they take the skull from Kit. And he tells like all the people who are in the museum that there's going to be cake and snacks. <laughs> yep. Just go. <laughs> Sorry for this traumatic or stressful moment. We've got cake and refreshments. And he just sends, sends everybody into another wing. You want to follow those people and be like, ah. And then he takes the two skulls, puts them together, and a laser beam comes out of one of the skulls and eventually points to this map on a wall which then shows the secret island where the climax is going to take place right but it's just so kind of zany yes i i love it and it was like what was it like the the skull that treat williams had was like smoking in the bag that he was carrying because it was near enough to the other one that they were starting to trigger a reaction which pretty fun yeah and david Preval's like hey your bag is smoking or whatever yeah i'm I'm also happy that like they they don't get bogged down into like why is any of this stuff work why drax even knows about this stuff and has any idea like what it's supposed to do like any of that like they're just like there's three skulls he's got one there's one there's a boom Let's just get the way they handle it is we get the classic bad guy, you know, conference room scene, yep. you know, straight out of Batman 89 oh, yeah. and other movies. James Bond movies love these scenes. But, you know, he's talking to all his mobster buddies. And he's like, we got to get these skulls because that way we'll have supernatural right, power yep. beyond anyone's imaginations. And then this much more level headed gangster. Right. It's like, I'm out of here. I'm not doing nothing. I was an altar boy. I'm not going right, to yeah. go along with any of this devil stuff or whatever. And Drax is like, that's fine. That's fine. You can go. And then he fucking throws a spear at the guy <laughs> yeah. and like pins him to the wall. And then he hands David Preval all of his uh, mobster ties. Yeah. He basically like, you're the boss now or you're the, the head. And he, what does he even say? He's like, oh, I've been waiting. <laughs> like it's Millhouse's time to shine. Kind of like it was just this yeah. moment of like. Really happiness. Like, the guy got a promotion. I loved it. Yeah. It's cheap in one way, but I feel like it's, uh, I, I think that's smart screenwriting because it, it knows to predict enough of the questions. Now, some people are not going to find that kind of answer satisfying, right? Like, no. But I do. Again, in this context, like, that's all I need. You know, and the fact that he let one person question his completely insane plan. Because, I mean, yeah. <laughs> from that guy's perspective, he is a big city gangster. And this guy is now talking about finding a hidden island with magic skulls. It's like, yeah, that guy's not sticking around for this. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, again, the Rocketeer, when Paul Sorvino's character, when when he realized he's been helping Sinclair, the villain, and then he realized, like, wait, you're a Nazi? Never mind. And then he turns on him because it's like, okay, I may be bad, but come on. I know when I'm drawing a line. So, yeah, after this, Drax tells his henchmen to take uh, Billy Zane up to the roof to beat out some information or something yeah. of him. And Billy Zane manages to uh, get the drop on the thugs and he changes into his phantom costume, which he's, I guess, had under his clothes or something. Seems like he wouldn't want to do that at all. One, why would you take the time? But also, like, you're not a legend there. Yeah, whatever effect your costume is having in Bengala, it's not going to be having it in New York City. Right. So, again, it, it feels like in an earlier draft, Kit had never been to America. But then they felt that they needed to explain, like, either his English or, like, they, you know, something. Because you can really see this having been like, oh, I've never left 
Bengala, I don't want to leave it unprotected. And then he's this fish out of water, paying off in non-US currency and all of this stuff. Again, they did a half measure. It's like, he does all of that stuff, but he's also like totally like in mesh with society. The best thing about this whole part though, is when he slides down the elevator shaft yes. with his guns, he uses the handles of his guns to hook the, uh, what do you call it? The cable that, yeah, the tension cable basically. And like, yeah, it's, he doesn't have a grapple. Like he's one, he's, he's a costume vigilante that doesn't have a grappling hook, you know? So he makes one, which is great. That's pretty much the most he does with his guns. I mean, I know he fires them a few times in the movies. Again, but... they feel like weird, almost like vestigial kind of elements of the character, right? Where it's like he's yeah. had them. So it's part of the look. They also don't want in this PG movie their hero just mowing people down constantly. But it's a clever way to use them. He does look cool with the holster. He does. Both of our pulp heroes do look cool with their gun holsters. And especially with the Phantom, you need something to break up the purple. For sure. When when you are a monotone, like you need something. And like just like the brown kind of or black holster is, is good. We get a chase through New York City that ends up at a zoo, which the zoo is actually this old zoo in L.A., um, which is a place that I've spent a lot of oh, time cool. in. It's cool. It's been abandoned for years, but the structures are all still there. And you can like hang out and have picnics around there and stuff like that. It's really cool. But I immediately recognized it. So I knew it was filmed in Los Angeles and like the cops are chasing him around this zoo and he ends up in a like tiger cage. But, you know, because he's from the jungle, he can relate to the tiger and the tiger scares the cops away. I mean, it's a throwaway scene, but it's fun. But it does lead to the return of our hero, Cabby, who has. Oh, no, wait, we did see him one more time because in the short time that like Billy Zane, like Kit was like meeting with people in the building, he comes back out. He's like, while you were gone, I had these jewels appraised. It's like, who did yes. you go to? <laughs> like, right, exactly. And he's like, I'm yours, basically. And I'm like, that's amazing. The Phantom doesn't need to control people's minds. No. He just buys them off with the jewels that he's taken from the native land. I would have loved nothing more than like when we're seeing like, you know, the trip back to Africa, like the cab to be on the boat. And then like it's, he trades in the horse and just coming down the jungle is like the guy in the cab driving the phantom around like well the way the phantom does get back to africa is almost as ridiculous because he basically hitches a ride on drax's seaplane he just like hangs out on the pontoons it's some like indiana jones in the submarine level shit okay the the kind reading of it is whoa look at his endurance and strength he held on yeah. to this plane from new york to Africa, this seaplane. Which would have had to have landed at some yes. point and refueled. That makes no sense. Right. So that's the kind version of like, but otherwise it's like, all I kept thinking of is like, what if he fell asleep? <laughs> like I kept thinking that like, whoa, whoa. That's a long plane ride. <laughs> it's a long plane ride. And just like the idea that, yeah, he's hugging it <laughs> like in, the whole time. But I have to imagine that anyone who is sort of lingering on the fence of this movie up to this point, but is still holding on. Yeah. This may be the point where they're like, okay, yeah. I can't hang anymore with this. No. Because unfortunately the third act I feel is sort of a letdown. It makes the weird choice of like, like Indiana Jones can be globetrotting because we don't really care about like his home. There's nothing there. But what we do here is we basically go to a third location. 
Yeah. We don't go back to Bengala. We go to this island that they supposedly never known existed, right? No, nobody knows. Right. That's, the skulls have pointed it out. It's like this deserted island somewhere. Right. So it feels very weird because now suddenly we're like, he's not defending the place that he's supposed to be the protector of. And he's not a fish out of water trying to use jungle tactics in the big city. I feel like it robs it of, of some weight. Which maybe then they were hoping the fact that it turns out to be coincidentally the home base of the pirates. I think you hit the nail on the head. And this is all, of course, speculation. We don't know for sure. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it probably was budget related. Because this feels like what, you know, they had probably had a better idea for the ending. Because, I mean, the ending that you would imagine would be the skull is back in Bengal or whatever. And now the phantom has to rally the natives to fight off Drax's goons. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's got to use the strength of his myth essentially as the weapon. Yes. He's got to outsmart these city people in, in the jungle. He's got to fall back on all of that stuff. Yeah. And no, it's, it's basically lightsaber. It's it's the Schwartz. It's lightsabers with rings. <laughs> like it's what is what we get, and that does feel like a compromise ending. But the best thing is we do get a great actor that I always love to see. So I'm I can't hate it for this. Uh, Carrie Tagawa. Yes. Yeah, he's great. I mean, but it's like if you're gonna have him, why is he only showing up in the last twenty minutes? Right. He's got such a great intensity. Drax even makes the line like, I never wanted a partner, but hey, maybe. And it's like, yeah, do this earlier. It also just feels like another buy that's being asked of us because, yeah, yeah, we know we had 30 seconds in the beginning of the movie where we talked about pirates, but like we've all forgotten about pirates at this point. Yeah. This has not been a pirate story. No, and now we're in a like pirate island with a pirate cove in it yeah. where they're all just living, I guess, forever. And I mean, they still look like, you know, 17th century yep. pirates, basically. They're not modern pirates. We are back to an element from the shadow, right? Yes. Like, it's almost exactly the same thing where you're like, why are they looking like they are when this is a modern in in the time? This is not a ghost pirate, much like Shiwan Khan was not Genghis Khan, but yet still walked around half the time looking like from that era. So, yeah, it it all feels like we need to do this because the Phantom fights pirates. Right. But if you're going to do that, do it the whole movie. You know what I mean? Pick a lane. Yes. Well, that's exactly it. Like, or skip the middleman of like Drax, like having these weird like gangster henchmen. Right. Drax used his resources and is like basically funding these pirates to be plundering various places in search of the thing for him. The only way they've tied this in at all is that this is the Sang Brotherhood and uh, James Remar, who's been along for the ride the whole time. He's here at this yep. climax too, along with David Preval, the gangster. Yep. So you've got a real like. I mean, we got a rogues gallery. Like, yeah, rogues gallery of odd characters. Yeah mismatched characters here at the end which i'm fine with i like that the only tie is that yeah uh, other than the fact that this is the same brotherhood that killed kit's dad conveniently well no his great 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 somewhere when pirates were actually like the pirates that we think of (laughs) like right and then again this guy who's the head of the sang brotherhood is the relative of that right so they've basically had a parallel story yeah like a generational 
conflict again uh, which would have been a great villain for this movie then i guess if you have to do it you know but like he's yeah it's weird that he's a just a like a mid boss kind of it's similar to the way you were talking about in the shadow the way you just assumed that genghis khan it was actually yeah. Genghis Khan and not the relative of the Genghis Khan. The same thing is happening here where even though the movie is explaining to you that this guy is not right. the original guy, he's the descendant, your mind just at this point, because you've just been kind of processing all this stuff, you're like, is this the same guy? Right. Are these like, are these immortal pirates or something? Like what's going on? And also like basically when everyone shows up and it turns out that the cave is inhabited because that's where the pirates are. The only reason why the pirates don't like attack everyone is James Maymar shows the tattoo because he doesn't know where this is. So like, shouldn't he have known about this yeah. secret hideout or is he not that high up in the chain? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then it's a coincidence. Yes. It's a coincidence that this is where they've ended up, which then is, again, what makes it like, all right, now I'm starting to feel like, you know, I've bought in on everything, but this is starting to feel like too many now. And I feel that this is why this movie has a sort of bad reputation with people mm -hmm. because, you know, I feel that you end up kind of leaving this movie with a bit of a bad taste in your mouth. I still like this movie at the end of the yeah. day, but whenever I reach this point of the movie, I'm like, this isn't working for me, right. you know, and now we're stage bound. And even the Phantom himself is just kind of like lurking around in the shadows the whole time. Right. He's not doing much. And we should say, like, obviously it's on the poster. He's got the ring, but they've never really done much with it in this movie to, like, make it seem anything other than just another thing he's wearing. Right. It's a symbol. It's passed down, but it's not hinted that it's it's supposed to be imbued with anything that's supposed to help him other than be just part of the legend. So when this movie kind of hinges upon the fact that, like, I guess it's the reveal that it needs a fourth skull, like three yeah. wasn't enough, and it's just the skull ring. It's like it lands with a thud because it's like, okay, why? It feels like something that was just tacked on. Yeah, that feels like an on-the-set writing. Right. So now Drax has the three skulls, and they're like shooting laser beams to the point where he evaporates James Remar, right? Quill. Yeah. It's like, okay, so how are we going to have the Phantom defeat him? Oh, let's just throw in this thing where there needs to be a fourth skull that controls all of them. Right. And the Phantom's going to realize that he's wearing it on his hand. And then we're going to literally have the like laser beams meeting, you know, in the middle of a shot. So I said this in the last episode. You know how much I would love to see the raw footage of like Alec Baldwin and the guy who played Chewan Khan yeah. like staring at each other. I want to see the raw footage of Billy Zane <laughs> and Treat Williams. Billy Zane holding up his hand with the ring and then Treat Williams holding the skulls, but with none of the laser effects. Because I guarantee you it's the funniest thing. Like, because <laughs> that's all it is. Treat Williams is on a catwalk <laughs> in a cave and Billy yep. Zane's on the ground below and they are just lasering each other. Yeah, the fight that we get is not even between Treat Williams and Billy Zane. No. We get a fight between the Phantom and Sang, the Kerry Tagawa yeah. character, that's more of a traditional fight. Right. And he defeats him. And then he fights James Remar a little bit. You know, so those are the two yeah. like fisticuff moments we get. And then with Drax, we get the magic moment. Right. And, and one that can be okay if. Drax is set up to not be a villain that's not a physical threat, but we've seen him expertly throw a spear and kill someone. 
it's weird to then like kind of shunt him off to the side and and then not have it be a physical conflict you do the james bond thing where like the villain doesn't like to shake hands or be touched so he's got like you know jaws next they don't do that and it feels like an improv ending of just like we don't know what to do because even um Catherine zeta jones turns good helps out and then Christy Swanson and her are just like shoved in like a submarine. Which comes out of nowhere. And there was it's no like reason. this mini Nautilus sub yeah. that's just in like a hangar in the island. And it really feels like, uh, we don't know what to do with you. And that's it. Like, they've been proactive characters this whole time. And then they are just literally shoved aside. Yeah, it's all pretty bad, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. The Phantom's Ring blows up Drax and we do get a great treat Williams screaming like ah, as he bursts into flames as poor as like the this ending is anytime treat Williams is on screen I'm loving everything about it because I know he is loving everything about it he's living up to his name he is a treat he's a treat and again I think the best line said in this movie and I'm, I don't have the exact thing but when he spells his name to the guy and he's like name begins and ends with x begins with an x ends with an x yeah it is just such a well-delivered line that i feel like i can't pinpoint what it is but it's like i'm like i know that character now the trappings of magic are supposed to be there or like superstition but it's supposed to be like two-fisted punching and they kind of betray that by real magic and then solving it by real magic as opposed to because it's like okay if that stuff really exists then like your legend really is not living up to anything because like, right. you know, like <laughs> you're not a convincing ghost and there are magic skulls in this world. I feel like they thought they could get away with it because Indiana Jones gets away with it. Yeah. But Indiana Jones somehow manages to keep things really grounded yes. right up into the point when it's not. And even then it doesn't go like laser beam crazy. Yes. The supernatural events are subdued enough right you know it looks like a storm or it's a night in a cave yeah. or i mean temple of doom gets pretty crazy no no i know exactly what you mean they they leave enough wiggle room that i guess like you're not having to jump on board totally if you don't want to but like it's really hard to come up with anything else other than these skulls are shooting laser beams out of their eyes and i guess his ring is shooting a separate beam, right? It's not just... No, it definitely is. His ring is shooting a purple beam out of it. Which means he has no idea that this has been able to do this. Does it only do this in defense of the other skulls, or can it be used as its own weapon? Exactly. That was my question. Because at first I was like, oh, maybe he's using the ring to reflect the beam back and it can withstand it but it changed the color yeah so i was like it had to be it had to be rewrites because everything else had been pretty solidly put together with little quibbles this definitely feels like they just took five million dollars away from us and here's what we got i didn't read anything that supports that in whatever's up on wikipedia or whatever but if you know anything about movie making it seems pretty obvious again you look at the writer is not again he's not an amateur regardless of what you think about his anything he's written like this is not what he's going to do. Yeah, and again, going back to Batman, Batman famously had the same sort of situation happen, but they managed to pull something together yeah. that worked. You know, I mean, it's not the greatest part of the movie, the the cathedral yeah. fight, 
but it's not a mess like this is. This is a mess. At least that one feels like a cool set piece that you're visiting, whereas, yeah, this doesn't. This is the high school production of The Phantom, like, because the movie right. was a big hit, <laughs> and, like, the next year, they, like, they reuse some, like, Wizard of Oz, like, like trees, and it's, like, the jungle. And that's a shame, because that might be what is stopping this from at least hitting, like, a cult favorite kind of level. Because I don't even think it's there. It has a little bit of cult cachet now. A little bit. Not anything major, you know, not like Scott Pilgrim. Right. Well, that's what I mean, you know. And you have to imagine that it is because it really just can't stick the landing. And it's also um, like an hour and 40 minutes. It's not long, especially by like any modern superhero standard. It is breezy as can be. And even the kind of the epilogue, the wrap-up scenes, they kind of do a weird, like he explains what we've already kind of known. And then... I guess it's supposed to be like romantic intrigue that like Christy Swanson's going to leave. But she might be back for the sequel. Right. And I guess they're trying to play the little like will they or won't they. But as you pointed out earlier, like it kind of speaks to a real lack of like forethought on Billy Zane's part. of like, <laughs> dude, you know, this is the second time. And like you've got a real connection this time and you're just going to let her go like. I don't know, man. One thing I do love, though, about this last scene they have together on the beach is she demands that he takes off his mask and we get a Batman Returns moment where he takes off his mask. And even though you can clearly see that he wears like black yep. grease paint to shade in his domino yep. mask, when he takes off the mask, it magically isn't there. Yep. And his hair is just like perfectly like sweaty, but you know, it, it, it falls magically like to just like frame his face, you know? And you're like, Oh man, it's a pretty good wig. I, I happen to know that Billy lost his hair at a young age and he's always wearing toupees. I would have to think that was that that was a wig. It definitely is. But it's convincing. No, no, it's a good wig. It's a good wig. And he looks great in it. Yeah. It's, it's very 90s kind of, but it's, you know, also late 30s kind of long bangs. And yeah, stuff. yeah, exactly. You're right. It had to be a sequel banking. But it also didn't feel like it was like a question of like, will they get together? It just kind of felt like it was like, we're just delaying. He was signed for a trilogy. So they were planning to do a trilogy. But they didn't because this movie cost $45 million and it grossed $17 million oh, worldwide. Worldwide, too. That's Worldwide. Ouch. In comparison, The Shadow cost $25 million, so less than this movie, and it grossed $32, worldwide $48. Okay. But yet, I feel like The Shadow has the worst reputation. I feel like there are people who enjoy The Phantom because I think The Phantom is more of a fun movie. It is. Overall, The Shadow is kind of a bit of a drag. It is. And I like The Shadow too, yeah. but it's not as fun. If I was going to bet like which one I liked more, I bet you I would have said The Shadow just based on like, the aesthetics and everything. But The Phantom is way more fun. So I would say that's the one that holds up more. And it's funny because they both do weirdly hit a lot of similar notes and almost fall into some of the same mistakes. Like both their endings just kind of fall flat. Like they, they kind of devolve into like special effects that I don't think looked good at the time, let alone now. Yeah. And just kind of end, you know, it's like they don't really do much. Um, but definitely I think the Phantom like holds up as a much more fun movie. And it also helps that it's like, yeah, it's a guy, he's in a weird costume, and he's from Africa, 
and their skulls. Like with the shadow, you've got a lot of like others like, what is he doing? And is he there? The shadow just feels like not as good Batman, where the phantom feels like something just wacky in its own right. Yeah. Like it can't really be compared as closely to something else that's more successful other than Indiana Jones. Yeah. And that's true too. And it probably avoids those comparisons just by the hero being the phantom as opposed to Indiana Jones. But you know, with the shadow, they tried very much to make him look like Batman at times, you know? Yeah. So I guess my one quick question that I would have is the shadow they could remake or just reboot, whatever. And when you said earlier, like maybe this one, they couldn't. Do you think there's a way they could do it now? The Phantom? Yeah. I think you could, and I know this this is always the default answer for tentpole trauma, so I apologize to everybody to keep coming back to this again. I feel like you could do it in a smaller way. Yeah. Like as a Netflix show or maybe just like a Netflix movie or something, if you just stuck to the jungle premise, yeah. maybe worked with the suit a little bit to make it less ridiculous. I mean, I think you would have to bring it down to earth. Yeah. I don't, I think you and I wouldn't like it as much. Right. Then that's kind of what I was wondering. Because what we like about it. You're right. I think you cannot do. Yeah. It's too goofy. And that's just the word. Yeah, you know, it is. Goofy. And that's what it is. But I think you could take the idea of it and do something interesting. And like definitely like you're saying the comics have done, you know, approach the colonialism idea and like approach it head on. And you might actually get people who are into like comics and who are like kind of woke or whatever into that idea. You know what I mean? I mean, and maybe you change his race or something, yeah. you know, like, I don't think I would like it as much. No, no. I always look at these things, like, having listened to so much old-time radio, like, you at a certain point have to just be able to roll with the fact that they are going to do things that just aren't okay. 100%, yeah. And maybe it's easier to let those things go because of when they were made versus, like, someone trying to make it, like, now, right? So, yeah. You know, they can get away with a lot of glossing over or casting something in a better light. But there's this part of me in my head that, like, I do kind of like the idea of, like, a phantom story where it leans more into, like, the idea that, like, he's convinced the people that he is supernatural. Almost like a predator story where, like, you've got, like, colonialists, like, running roughshod, you're like, in the jungle and and he's doing things that like play on superstitions. But it's like, at that point you are so far from guy in purple suit. At the end of the day, man, it's really the purple suit is your biggest obstacle. <laughs> you know, like, it really is. Like, cause you could like take the idea of this jungle vigilante and do something with yeah. it. But are you going to put him in a purple suit or not? Right. Because that's the, you know, it's funny. Like you think about it. It's like, because it's 100% purple, every tweak is huge. It's not like yeah. it's not like the Batman suits where they're kind of like at a certain point they're just kind of playing around the edges. Like, but the yeah. basics are there. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, you do anything to it. Yeah, the purple is everything. The fact that it's a purple suit is everything that makes it unique. And so, otherwise, you what you have to probably do is like when when you're doing Halloween movies and you have to explain Michael Myers. Well, what are Celtics up to? You're going to have to find some really random 
thing and pretend it's lore and be like purple means this and like and right. make it the story and then again yeah it all gets away from the point or like you know you you'd be like he wears purple because it's the color that stands out most yeah, in the right. jungle and he wants he wants you to see him if you know if you read any moon knight comics that's always the explanation of moon yep. knight why he wears white because like why would you wear white and be a nighttime vigilante right. it's like no he wants you yeah. to see him or like batman's yellow oval he wants you to aim at that and that's why he wears it. exactly yes and, and that's the yeah and i'm sure that's exactly where they would go it's like you try and turn the the weakness of or the perceived weakness of the story call it into a strength but it it was something i was just thinking about when i was because i didn't have a problem thinking about remaking like someone re taking the shadow you know you can downplay like the origin or downplay the he can do this just because it was from the far east you can mess with that and everything else is bad but the phantom it just feels like i'm surprised they made it in 96 yeah and uh you'd be surprised if they did it again i guess they did on sci-fi but it really looked, it looked like he had like a helmet and like a visor. It was totally different. So yeah, that was my, my big question was just like, well, I don't know how you'd even do it. All right. Well, I have a final question for you and we're going to not do the, why did these fail? Because I feel like we covered that in the context of our conversation. Yeah. Purple <laughs> suit. And like, these are pulp characters that just don't resonate with people anymore. But let me ask you yeah. this. Who do you think would win in a fight? The shadow or the phantom? Ooh. I'm going to say the phantom. Phantom. Phantom will win. Okay. Um, not based on what we've seen in the movies, because these movies, but I think the Phantom as a character is going to be much more adept at like using unfamiliar surroundings and, and could actually get the, the drop on the shadow. If it was just seeing him as they were presented in these two movies, I'd probably say the shadow because he's got ostensibly magic powers that he knows that he has rather than like a dude that's wearing purple that has a magic ring that has never known <laughs> that it's a magic ring. I'm going to say it depends on where they're fighting. Yeah. If it's in the jungle, Phantom wins because the Phantom's going to see the shadow pushing aside ferns or whatever. I mean, we've established at least in the movies and I'm going by movie yeah. characters that the shadow gives himself away when he's in dense environments, yeah. let's say. And the jungle is the densest you can get. So there's no way yeah. he's going to beat the Phantom in the jungle. Plus, he's wearing all that heavy clothing. He's dead. Yeah. But in the city, it's more of an even draw. Like, I wouldn't say the Phantom definitely loses because we have seen that he can handle himself in a city environment. But the Shadow definitely has the advantage there. So I might give it to the Shadow in that setting well then the real question is which cabbie wins oh definitely peter boyle 100 <laughs> percent. that guy is a bruiser yeah. dude like he, he's gone now rest in yeah. peace peter boyle but in his day he was a pretty heavy set like not fuck with him type of guy that other guy was also heavy but yeah he didn't seem like he had the height no 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 he would kick that guy's ass it's like the cabbie showdown <laughs> i i love that these movies exist i i guess that's the key i love for whatever bewildering reason that like studios kept running at the same wall for you know at least five movies that i know of i'm grateful they did i don't know if i would have wanted them to succeed because i don't know if i would have ever wanted to see sequels you kind of just feel like these are just such weird little experiments that like i'm glad exist i totally feel the same way like i feel like anything else would have just been sort of diminishing their specialness yeah they did something that was both like 
completely aping the style of something that came before it, but also being weird aberrations in the theaters. Like, I, I love that. All right, man. Well, I'm going to go put on my purple suit, jump on my horse, summon my pet wolf, and of course, slam evil. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. (laughs) 